morning, our family is looking forward to, uh, Lord willing, flying out to California. Uh, my dad turned 70 this year, and so this is something that we've been talking about for some months, going out with my whole family, uh, where a couple of our prodigal sons are hanging out as well, and having an opportunity to spend time with them. So uh, our plan originally was to fly out this evening, and then they changed our plan, so now our plan is to fly out this afternoon at 2.30. So if you don't see us much after we sing together, um, it's not because we're like trying to avoid you. We just got to go. Um, next Sunday, uh, you have the opportunity to hear from somebody who's become a valued friend of mine, uh, somebody who um, is one of the best pastors that Grace has ever had, uh, Dale Anderson. Um, is, has agreed to come and, and preach from Nehemiah 7. Uh, I'll be curious. I told him already, I'll be curious to see how he handles a passage like this, a passage that includes a lot of names and records and things like that, and is the Word of God. Dale is a, a faithful man who loves God's Word, and you will no doubt benefit uh, when he comes to preach next week. So you can be praying for him as he prepares we would appreciate your prayers as well, that the Lord would just go before us as we travel, uh, keep us safe, and uh, help us to be wise as we do that. <clears throat> We're familiar with uh, a few of the words of Franklin Roosevelt's first inaugural address from March 4, 1933. I'm going to read the sentence that has the words we're familiar with. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Roosevelt clearly didn't mean that everything's fine, and therefore we ought to just sort of get on with life as normal, and sort of be happy. This was a, a, a dark time for the United States. He wasn't denying that or trying to hide from it. He meant that there is a kind of fear that blinds you, that blinds us, that blinds people to the best path forward. As we would expect, the Bible speaks with even more clarity to the kind of fear that blinds us, and it does come in different forms. One particularly blinding kind of fear that the Bible draws out, and that we're going to see as a major theme in this morning's passage in Nehemiah 6, that's the fear of man. In this morning's passage, Nehemiah is going to face three more obstacles, three more threats. They're going to start from outside the wall, and they're going to work their way inside the wall until it turns out that the threat from the outside and the threat from the inside are interwoven with each other, which is a particular kind of problem. Three more attempts to shut down his work. And every time, the main tool in that attempt is fear. People want to get him to be afraid in order to stop doing the work. <clears throat> Proverbs 29.25 says that the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear of man lays a snare. It 
it stops us from doing whatever it was, whatever good thing it was that we were on our way to do, partly by blinding us. We don't overcome the power of that fear just by self-confidence. Like, I don't have to be afraid of you. I'm smarter. I'm stronger. I can handle this on my own. We actually overcome the power of the fear of man by a greater and better kind of fear. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. As we move into the story this morning where we see the fear of man woven through and its blinding power, I want us to have a, a, a realistic picture of what the fear of the Lord actually is. You can hear the fear of the Lord sort of described in terms of, well, it doesn't mean being afraid of him. It means sort of reverential awe. Maybe you've heard something like that. I don't know that's, that that's ever actually helped me very much. It sounds more like um, a, a vague synonym than a helpful explanation. And so I just want to take a minute to think about the fear of the Lord, what it isn't and what it is. Just, just briefly, I certainly won't hit everything. The fear of the Lord is real fear. It's real fear. It feels like real fear. Excuse me. It, It feels genuinely nervous at the prospect of ignoring or defying what the Lord says. Think, well, here's an opportunity to either obey or disobey, and if I consider disobeying, the fear of the Lord says, that's not safe. Don't do that. You should... You should be nervous about that, and you should, frankly, run from it. It's uncomfortable. The fear of the Lord is uncomfortable with treating the God of the universe as a peer. It's not comfortable saying, well, the Lord says this, but I can take it or leave it. When that thought comes up, uh, it makes the person who rightly fears the Lord nervous. The fear of the Lord is real fear. And yet the fear of the Lord works differently than the fear of man because the Lord is so different from man. Think about what makes you fear a person if you actually fear them. You fear them because they are unpredictable or unkind or unjust or unwise or unreliable or stupid. You you fear them because you can't trust them. That's so often what causes the fear of man. It comes from not trusting someone. The fear of the Lord comes from exactly the opposite direction. The biblical fear of the Lord comes from the fact that you do trust him. The fact that you know his words are completely reliable. You you can't actually break his word, but you can break yourself against it. And not only is his word reliable in the sense that, that we can't undo it, But it's good. He's good. He is reliably good. And so we take him seriously, not only because we know that disobedience to him is dangerous, but because we love him, because we want to be near him. The fear of man drives you away from the person that you fear. It breaks relationship. It hinders relationship. The biblical fear of God always draws someone into closer relationship with him. You take him seriously. You don't treat him like a peer. 
You hear his word and say, I, 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 it is never safe and never good for me to take it or leave it. And so you draw near to him. And so when we, when we hear about the fear of the Lord and think about the fear of the Lord as drawing us near to him, then we can, we can feel what it would have been like for the people of Nehemiah's time, as he describes them in chapter 1, verse 11, to be those who delight to fear your name. Those who delight to fear your name. <clears throat> the fear of man is creative. It's creative enough to come across uh, looking like something other than fear. Looking, in fact, like friendliness. So this is actually another thing that we're going to see woven into the strategies of Nehemiah's enemies in this story. In each case, there's going to be a theme of partnership. Where either the enemies offer a partnership to Nehemiah, they say, come, let us meet together. Let's do this together. Or, in the case of the last part of the story, the last opposition, there's already a partnership. A deep and dangerous one. We will also see in each of these stories that the fear of the Lord enlightens the person who fears the Lord in such a way as to allow that person to see through cheap disguises. Nehemiah does that in the first opposition and in the second opposition. It's at least implied in the final opposition. The fear of the Lord opens our eyes. <clears throat> so let's look at the story. First, the trouble from the outside in verses 1 through 9. Uh, the enemies from the outside are back. Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, they get word that the wall is almost finished. And they see whatever influence they had, whatever power they had over this area, slipping away. And they don't like that. And they've tried the taunting approach already. Uh, Peter shared about this a couple weeks ago. I appreciate his willingness to step in and do that work to serve our body in that way. And there's this taunting approach. That, that wall, that won't work. That's not going to work. If a fox jumps up on that wall, it's going to fall down. That's not going to work. And they, they're not successful in stopping him. And it does work. And it is working. So that doesn't work. So they try something else. They send a letter to Nehemiah saying in verse 2, Come, let us meet together. The fear of man is not always dread. Sometimes it comes in the form that it causes us to, to allow someone to be big enough to just have outsized influence in our life. To allow them to be big enough to have the outsized power of flattery over us. It's as if here, the, here are people saying, you know what, Nehemiah, you're, you're important like we are. So let's get together to talk about important things. And you can imagine the appeal of somebody important coming to you and treating you as important as they are. And you think, well, maybe they finally realized who I am. You get sucked in really easily. The wisdom born out of the fear of God helps us, and really here helps Nehemiah to see through cheap disguises. There really was no good reason for them to ask him to meet them halfway. They say, come meet us on the plain of Ono, which evidently is about halfway in between Samaria where they are and Jerusalem where he is. Well, they know that he's right in the middle of a major building project. 
there's really no good reason for them, if they really want to talk to him, to ask him to come meet them halfway. They can just as well come to him where he is instead of asking him to do that. And so he can see through it. And whether he's referring to a physical danger or whether he's referring mainly to just their intent to stop the work, he says in verse 3, they intended to do me harm. And he can see it. And so he tells them, uh, I'm busy right now. Why should I, verse 3, what, why should the work stop in order for me to come down to you? This actually doesn't make any sense at all. And so your flattery isn't working on me. I'm not going to do it. Pestering doesn't work either. Nehemiah says, they sent to me this way four times. <clears throat> Verse 4. And I answered them in the same manner. Kind of busy right now. Can't do it. So flattery doesn't work and pestering doesn't work. And with the fifth letter, Sanballat changes his strategy. And he takes direct aim at Nehemiah's reputation. This is so powerful. He sends an open letter to Nehemiah. Open so that it can be clear that other people can know what's in it. Sometimes maybe you'll see an open letter posted on the internet. So it's directed to one person, but it's out there intentionally for everyone to see. And that out there-ness is supposed to have power over the recipient of the letter. This letter says, people are talking. There's a theory out there. There's a report out there and a theory about what it is that you're really up to with this wall business. Why would you be building a wall? Could it perhaps have anything to do with the fact that you want Israel to be its own nation again? Its own nation that's not under the rule of Persia anymore? You want to make Israel great again? Is that what you're after? You want to make it its, its own nation with its own king? And if you want it to have its own king, then Nehemiah, the guy who's shown up, who's sort of leading the charge here, who would you most want to have be the king of Israel? Well, we can come up with all kinds of plausible answers to that question. So they do. Verses 6 through 7a answer all those questions in this open letter. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. Now, at that point, it's not only your reputation that's at stake. This is not just cheap self-promotion. This would be treason. And so it's your life that's at stake as well. And so they say, now the king will hear of these reports, especially with these open letters that happen to be floating around. So what do you do at that point? Have you ever been publicly misrepresented, even just to a few people? What's your reflex? Well, mine, if, especially if I know that I can defend myself against it, is to mount a defense and to say, no, this can be explained. I, I can be proven right in this case. that What they're saying is not true. And to be driven to defend myself 
by all the threats that I can imagine happening, not only to my reputation, but in this case, to my life, to my future. And Nehemiah models a beautifully different way in this case. He says in verse 8, very simply, no such things as you say have been done, for you have been inventing them out of your own mind. Eleven words in the Hebrew. Um, that, that's not true. You made that up. That's his response. Being falsely accused is frustrating, and it's painful. It's also blinding. And it can cause us to panic and respond in ways that really, even though they feel like they're going to solve the problem, really are not ultimately effective. Often, it can chase after what Roosevelt called the nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. If Nehemiah had done that, he had said, no, what you're saying in this letter is wrong. I can prove point by point that it's wrong, and I can do it publicly just like you're doing. He would have played exactly into their hand. Because what did they want to do by sending this letter? Actually tells us in verse 9, their point was to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. So instead of getting distracted and trying to defend himself, he just says, that's not true. And he keeps his hands on the work and he keeps his head down. Why, why does he do that? Why does Nehemiah take that approach? Is it just because he's sort of a self-confident bulldog that like, no, you can't distract me. I'm going to keep doing this. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Well, if he is a bulldog, that's kind of beside the point here. We actually get the foundation of his ongoing confidence in this very short prayer at the end of verse 9. The fact that there's a prayer there at all points us to where his confidence is and what keeps him going. Remember that arrow prayer from chapter 2? He doesn't even tell us what it was. It just says, so I prayed, and then he keeps on going. And that's what he does here. But now strengthen my hands. This is the kind of prayer that you pray when you know you have to keep working. And you pray while your hands are still on the work, while your head is still down. You pray without missing a beat. You say, Lord, this is your work. You want it to not be distracted. Strengthen my hands. Here are my hands on the work. Keep them on the work and keep them strong. And so he does. And he keeps going. And in just a few verses, we're going to see what happens as a result. First, though, the scene shifts second wave. Uh, this one doesn't come from outside the walls, at least not directly. It comes from inside the walls. Verses 10 through 14, Nehemiah tells us, I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah. For some reason, Shemaiah was confined to his home, we're told in verse 10. May have been because some kind of illness, may have been because of some kind of ritual impurity, or maybe he made it up. Um, this work that Nehemiah is doing has its enemies. And so continuing to do the work has its dangers. And so Shemaiah uh, makes a proposal to Nehemiah. And he attaches a warning to it. And he delivers this proposal and this warning like a prophet would. He speaks in poetic parallel lines. 
Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. You hear kind of the added gravity of making that poetic. This is serious. This is not something to toy around with. And wouldn't you want to pay attention to somebody who was warning you about a threat to your life? If you fear the Lord, your eyes will be open in such a way that you can see things that you might miss if you only feared men. Your eyes are open. You can see that Shemaiah's proposal has some stunning similarities to the strategies of Nehemiah's enemies from the last story. He says in verse 11, in response to Shemaiah, should such a man as I run away? Should I drop my hands from the work that the outsiders were just trying to scare me away from? That's exactly what they were trying to do before. They wanted to make me afraid so that I would leave the work. So should I run away from this work? And should I disobey the Lord to do it? Best I can tell, the only doors in the temple are the doors that guard the way to the place where only priests are supposed to be. Shemaiah says, let us go into the temple and shut the doors. As far as we can tell, we have no reason to believe that Nehemiah was a priest, which means he has no business inside those doors. So he says, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? You may drop the work. You may disobey the Lord out of the fear of man. If your main goal in life is to protect yourself on your own, then any threat to your life can blind you. Any threat to my life can blind me. Other concerns like the work and obedience to the word of God can be set aside. Those are nice things. They're good things that when we can, we really ought to treat them seriously. But boy, in this situation, this is about me. I have to make sure that I'm okay. Certainly, it's, it's fine to set these things aside right now. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It keeps your eyes open. So it leads to the, to the result of Nehemiah's sort of assessment of this situation. Should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. I'm not going to do this. This is the point at which his, his sort of considering of the situation gets translated into real and active obedience. And when it gets translated into real and active obedience, trusting obedience to the Lord out of the right kind of fear of God, his eyes are opened even further. And, verse 12, I understood and saw that God had not sent him. This, this business that you're proposing, Shemaiah, this so rings of what God's enemies are doing that I'm able to see right through it. I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. His purpose was exactly the same as the purpose of the last strategy. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. If they can't destroy my reputation from the outside, then they're going to work to try to get me to destroy my own reputation. Here at Nehemiah, you know, here, here's 
This guy who says that he, that he fears the Lord. He says that he's concerned about the good of God's people. But when push comes to shove, he runs away and hides in the temple. Look at this. The fear of the Lord allows him to see through the fear of man and to respond with trust. Well, that faithfulness to the Lord can only happen, really can only persevere by ongoing trust in the Lord. So once again, it gets expressed in verse 14 through prayer. Rather than simply taking things into his own hands, Nehemiah says in verse 14, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah, who hasn't been named until now, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. They're being totally unfair to me. They're being dishonest with me. But more than that, they are enemies of the gospel. The gospel, as it has been communicated up to this time among God's people, they are enemies of the gospel. And so Nehemiah says, Lord, I'm asking you to deal with them. They want to replace the fear of God with the fear of man. So, Lord, I'm asking you to handle this. You know how. And so he moves forward. Wisdom, seasoned through experience, allows Nehemiah to walk through some otherwise really rattling threats. And land in verse 15. He says, I kept going. I kept trusting. I kept obeying. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. It's kind of remarkable how understated he is. Here he's been working on this huge project, and he's been talking about all these threats to it, and then in one short verse he says, oh yeah, and we finished. We got it done. His head has been down, his hands have been on the work, his heart has been in tune with the Lord, and now the work gets done. And he actually makes a bigger deal out of the results of that work than out of the fact that the work itself got finished. The results of the work changed people's perspective on reputation. Reputation's been on the line here, right? Nehemiah's reputation has been on the line. This has a healthy impact on the way people think about reputation. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us, the ones that his enemies wanted to taunt him, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Why? Because they looked at us and they thought, wow, they're a lot better at building a wall than we are. Or maybe they're so much more noble than we are. No really didn't have anything to do with Nehemiah's reputation. It was about something much bigger than that. They fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That's what they needed to know. That's what this kingdom of priests was there to represent. And that is what we need to know in our ongoing work with its ongoing threats. It's what Nehemiah needed to know in his ongoing work because the threats were ongoing. And they were more deeply enmeshed than the first two threats have demonstrated. We see this just briefly in the third account in verses 17 through 19. Moreover, he says, In those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, 
the nobles. They're helping him on the wall. They're communicating with Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, an insider. He's a son-in-law. He's married Shechaniah's daughter. And his son, Jehohanan, so Tobiah's son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the daughter of Berechiah, as his wife. Now, if you remember where all those names come from, then you get a gold star today. Here's where Meshullam's name comes from. It comes from chapter 3, verses 4 and 30. He's helping Nehemiah with the wall. And one of Nehemiah's mortal enemies has a son that's married to Meshullam's daughter. So there, there are ties in between them. Tobiah has an in. In fact, so strong that many in Judah were bound by oath to him. And so, in a very crucial way, they're on his side. They speak for him. That doesn't mean that they did entirely, but, but their, their sort of loyalties are deeply and dangerously divided. Verse 19, also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. Tobiah's really actually a great guy. And they reported my words to him. That's probably not helpful. He's probably not going to use them in any way that's beneficial to Nehemiah. And here it is again, this central strategy that we cannot handle on our own. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. We can't overcome the fear of man just by figuring out how to solve problems in our own minds or in conversation with people. You try to do this, you... You see a problem coming, you think, well, this person's going to misunderstand me, or that person's going to oppose me, or there's, there's somebody who's going to get in my way, somebody that I can't trust to be for me, so I have to figure out a way to make sure that I am safe even when they oppose me. It's just not strong enough. It's not good enough. <clears throat> it's not that it's wrong for us ever to defend ourselves, but so often, as we see in Nehemiah's situation, it's ineffective and unfruitful. The, the real cure for fear, blindness, is the fear of the Lord. And God, in his great mercy, has not only told us, hey, you ought to fear me in the way that it's described in the Bible. He's taken the fear of the Lord and he's put it in a person who models it perfectly for us. He had actually promised that he would. Nehemiah would not have been a qualified king, but God promised that he would send one. In Isaiah 11, Isaiah writes, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, 
and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Right at the middle of that description, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is our king. This is Jesus. He doesn't only tell us we ought to fear the Lord. He shows us that it's actually a good thing, that it draws you. When you see Jesus fearing God, you see him drawn into relationship with his father. Where other fear blinds us and shuts us down, the fear of the Lord, the biblical fear of the Lord, modeled for us especially by Jesus, our great king, opens our eyes and moves us forward to do real good with real confidence, even when there are real threats. Father, would you draw us into this kind of relationship in which we know that we are not peers, but in which we know that we are deeply welcomed, that we are unsafe only apart from you, that we are safe with you. Father, I pray that as we face threats, perhaps threats to our reputation or even threats to our future or our safety, that we would not be blinded by the fear. That where it's appropriate just to let those things go and to say, you know that they are untrue, to keep, to keep our heads down, to keep our hands on the work, to keep our hearts in communication with you in order that the work might continue. You have prepared works ahead of time for us to do. Sometimes we get confused about what shape they should take next, but you're never confused. You're never afraid. And so we entrust ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.